I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 66, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 2, pages 458 to 463 and 469 to 477. A number of boys in the Sanford study said that the element of secrecy in their sexual pact and with the pedos contributed to fear and anxiety they experienced over possible exposure of their activities to their parents or police authorities, and Sanford himself admitted that most parents would react with horror if they knew their child or children were involved in such a thing. It appears that most of the boys Sanford interviewed seemed to be unaware of the degree to which they had been sexually and emotionally manipulated by the adult sexual predators. Almost all described their association with the pedophile pederast in positive terms, i.e. friendship and companionship. They also indicated that they attract that they were attracted to the pederast because he permitted them to indulge in freedoms like smoking and drinking that the parents would not permit. Nevertheless, a few of the older boys who had developed normal sexual heterosexual relations with girls were able to distinguish between sex with the pederast and the love that they felt for their girlfriends. In the Dutch edition of Sanford's work, the publishers were careful to point out that the boys interviewed in the study cannot be considered representative of all sexual relations which occur between men and boys, and that sexual abuse lies quite outside the area of this investigation. They also acknowledge the existence of the penal code that prohibits the adult child sex activity described in the study. Why weren't the boys and men who participated in the Sanford study representative? The answer is quite simple. They were obtained with the cooperation of the National Pedophile Work Group, LWGP, an adjunct of the Dutch Society for Sexual Reform. NBSH, the LWPG, founded in the early 1970s, works to decriminalize and promote consensual adult child sex and actively campaigns for the elimination of all age of consent laws. It has chapters in major Dutch cities and has recently changed its name to LWG slash J-O-R-S, the National Work Group, Child Adult Relations, Intimacy, Sexuality. It is highly unlikely that the LWPG would have been foolish enough to expose itself to possible criminal prosecution by providing Sanford with boy contacts who were angry and litigation-minded at having been sexually exploited and abused by older male predators. Secondly, Sanford's data indicate that there was an economic disparity between the boys families and the generally wealthier pedophiles pederas slash pederas. If some parents were profiting material from their materially from their son's relationship with these predators again, it stands to reason that the boy would not want to jeopardize the, that arrangement. In many ways the profile of the boys called for the Sanford study more closely resemble that of young adolescent boys or young boy prostitutes than your normal preteen and teenage boy. 
Some of the boys indicated that they had been passed on to their present partner for another, from another pederast. The Sanford study is important because its findings have been used by the homosexual collective in its campaign to lower the age of consent and to decriminalize pederasty. Pedophile slash pederast internet sites such as the Pedosexual Resources Directory, PRD, promote Sanford's works freely. So does the gay press. For example, in 1983, Gay Community News Boston carried a lengthy book review by Mark McCarries of Sanford's The Sexual Aspect of Pedophile Relations. McCary stated that the Sanford studies undermine many anti-man-boy stereotypes and even support certain associations by boy lovers. McCary bemoaned the repressive status quo that condemns adult child sex, but he held out the hope that pederasts slash pedophiles and young people are able to organize and fight for their rights. One victim is never enough, the saga of Clarence Osborne. In addition to reviewing Sanford's work, McCary also examined Paul Wilson's The Man They Called a Monster, the story of Clarence Osborne, a senior Australian public service employee and self-professed, self-confessed pederast who engaged in sex with more than 2,500 adolescent males over a 20-year period before taking his own life. Paul Wilson, at the time of the writing of his book on Osborne, was reader in sociology at the University of Queensland, Brisbane, the city where Osborne plied his trade. The text is based on Wilson's interviews with Osborne, some of Osborne's partners, as well as Osborne's own memoirs, transcripts of tape recordings, photographs, diaries, and filing cards on which he recorded the social status and the physical attributes of the young boys with whom he had sexual relations, including exact penile measurements. Indeed, it was his research that served as Osborne's main gimmick in attracting his subjects. That and an uncanny ability to invoke trust and establish an emotional bond in the youth that he drew into his net. According to Wilson, as a rule, Osborne searched out young boys between the ages of 13 and 20 who were alone, sometimes hitchhiking or hanging around a park or bus shelter or similar location. The criteria he used to select his victims were their dress, tight-fitting jeans or shorts that exposed their genitalia and backsides, their pose or stance, and direct eye contact that indicated they might be willing. Osborne's records indicated that sex with his boys took the form of mutual masturbation, fellatio, and fraudage. He also recorded that he had anally penetrated a few boys at their request, a highly implausible scenario that apparently went totally over Wilson's head. Osborne informed Wilson that he instructed his subjects on heterosexual techniques, that is, oral intercourse. Again, again the irony of his statement completely passed Wilson by. In taking his surveys of the boys' sexual histories, Osborne said that he encouraged them to talk freely about their sexual anxieties and desires without fear of moralistic recriminations. Throughout the book, Wilson refers to Greek love, although it is clear from the text that he was 
from the text he was ill-advised on the subject. Clarence Osborne was an exponent of what is generally referred to as Greek love, wrote Wilson. Such love is a physical and emotional expression of affection between an older man and a youth. To Osborne, Greek love was the highest form of love, surpassing even adult heterosexual or homosexual relationships, he said. Osborne said Wilson was simply helping boys to explore their sexuality and providing them with a much-needed sex education. It is also questionable as to how much background research Wilson did on pedophile groups that he defended in his book, such as the London-based Pedophile Information Exchange, PIEPI, whose spokesman, Tom O'Carroll, has recommended that the age of consent whereby boys can be legally, annually, and orally penetrated be set at age 12. Wilson also quoted NAMBLA co-founder and Harvard graduate Tom Reeves on the dynamics of man-boy Greek love that separates it from heterosexual affection. According to Reeves, a man loving a boy has a different tradition, one of rebellion, freedom, and play, He, Reeves, argues that this tradition is full of youth and liveliness, self-awareness and social resistance, said Wilson. Wilson concluded his book with a plea for the removal of criminal sanctions from nonviolent sexual activities, but at the same time providing the maximum social means for protecting the child. His final description of Osborne was that of a small, lonely, obsessive, and not very likable man, a criminal perhaps and he urged his readers to heed the lesson that Osborne taught us, that many thousands of young people in Western countries feel sexually repressed, alienated from adult company, and emotionally bankrupt. Like the Sanford study, Wilson's work suffered from a number of gross deficiencies, the most obvious being Wilson's obvious lack of knowledge of pederasty, which made any objective critical analysis of Osborne's research and of the man himself impossible. Surely missed from the book is information on Osborne's childhood, family, and his sexual career prior to the start of his pederastic adventures on the streets of Brisbane. Wilson's bibliography is very limited and obviously biased in favor of pro-pedophile, pro-homosexual sources. Wilson interviewed Osborne before the latter's suicide in 1979, but it seems he was more willing than willing to accept on face value what he was told rather than probe into the dark recesses of Osborne's psyche. Interviewing and debriefing habituated sex offenders like Osborne to get at the truth, or more accurately, at least part of the truth, repairs special, requires special knowledge and training. Secrecy is ingrained in the molester's personality and dismantling that secrecy takes a long time, as writers like Leberg have reminded us. Even after legal convictions, a molester tries to keep his secrets from the criminal justice system and his own lawyers if he can, said Leberg. Wilson was simply out of his league in dealing with Osborne, and this writer suspects that Osborne was smart enough to know that. Yet here is a man who, his publishers informed us, is one of Australia's best-known and most respected social scientists with degrees in psychology and sociology. Wilson, however, is not was not totally off-base when he said that Osborne has important lessons to teach us. 
one of these lessons is that habituated pederasts like Osborne, Clarence Osborne, can never get enough boys to satisfy their basic impulses any more than habituated homosexuals can find permanent satisfaction from their hundreds of anonymous sexual encounters. Osborne claimed to have had sexual relations with 2,500 boys, but there is no indication that that number was enough to satisfy his lust. As Bell and Hall, 1978, have so accurately observed, it can be stated as a general rule that any preoccupation of a, is a preoccupation because the object or activity with which one is preoccupied is not and cannot be completely satisfying except for a very short time. This is because the object of desire is not the originally desired object. It is displacement from some original object, and displacement can only be partially satisfying. Second best is never the best. Secondly, Osborne's actions attest to the truth of Negro's professional psychiatry, psychiatric opinion that the selfishness of child molesting men is almost delusional. His incapacity for empathy with normal children and their parents is at least psychopathic and can be rightly, rightfully called a circumscribed fixed psychosis. It seemed to have entirely escaped Wilson's attention that Osborne was performing sexually transgressive and criminal acts and exercising his sexual power over boys who were extremely vulnerable and powerless, and that Osborne objectified, exploited, and morally degraded and corrupted these young boys in order to satisfy his homosexual desires. Like the boys and young men of Leela's house, the very core of their being had been changed forever and for the worse. Through cognitive distortions, Osborne had convinced himself that the boys he procured were not harmed by his actions. He was in denial, and gauging from Wilson's uncanny symbiotic empathy with rather than his victims, it appears that Osborne was not the only one in denial. Conclusion. In section four, we will be returning to the subject of clerical pederasty in the Catholic Church. But for now, it bears repeating that many homosexuals of all ages are drawn to adolescent boys who are by definition now the, or by definition below the legal age of consent, that more homosexuals do not act on their pederastic desires can be attributed in part to the laws regu regulating the age of consent that is normally set at 18 years of age or older, but that if these laws were dropped entirely or lowered to the start of puberty, let's say 12 or 13 years of age, could we then expect an increase in pederastic behavior across the board by homosexual adults with the homosexual collective be campaigning for the elimination of age or consent if it were not in its members' self-interest to do so. This writer will leave the reader with a short story by the homosexual writer-director and Academy Award recipient Bill Condon that suggests the answer would be in the affirmative. Condon said that on one occasion he took his 16-year-old gay nephew who actually looked 13, to a weekend party given by some friends. He said his nephew 
was hit on by chicken hawks who were in the 22-year age group range. Condon said these said these young homosexuals were obsessed with teenagers, including his very young, pubescent-looking nephew, and there is no taboo involved. Chapter 9, The Homosexual Collective, an anti-culture of sexual deviancy. One of the unique hallmarks of contemporary society has been the successful organization and politicalization of sexually deviant behaviors. Heretofore, sexual outlaws accepted the prevailing definition of their behavior as deviant and remained hidden in the shadows of the criminal underworld. Today, they organize collectively and sound the trumpet of liberation. The homosexual collective is one such movement that has constricted a significant anti-culture built on sexual deviancy. This anti-culture is inclusive and embraces all forms of sexual perversion, including homosexuality, autoeroticism, transvesticism, fetishism, sadomasochism, and criminal pedophilia and pederasty. According to Father Rueda, the collective has increased, has created an environment totally dominated, totally dedicated to fostering same-sex relations, including male prostitution. Within this anti-culture, the liberated homosexual can find religion, culture, recreation, cruises, entertainment, education, and many other needs in institutions that are supportive of his needs, he said. The collective, is, in a sense, reflects and magnifies the individual homosexual and his traits and tendencies and assists him in his transformation from a homosexual to a gay man. It strengthens the homosexual component of his personality, makes him or her feel accepted, and keeps him positively fixated on same-sex relations. It attempts to assuage his troubled conscience and relieve him of his sense of guilt and sin that are inherently associated with deviant acts. It also helps its members in the development of survival skills necessary for coping in a heterosexual universe. Most importantly, the collective defines, controls, and validates authentic homosexual identity and behavior and all other aspects of gay life. The this dictatorship of the collective also provides a powerful gift, powerful political base that feeds the elite leadership's desire for domination and control. The collective has created an insulated fantasy world, a world of make-believe for its inmates, one that caters to their immature behaviors, vindicates their childhood hurts, and tolerates their hissy fits and temper tantrums. In The Pleasure Addicts, Dr. Lawrence Hatterer described the process by which an addict, including a sexual addict, seeks out fellow addicts and addicting the environment that make him feel more alive, more adequate, and relieved of the pressures that triggered him to turn to them. Hatterer explained, usually an addict who is just entering his subculture finds a compliment, either a fellow addict in a more advanced stage of addiction or one who is older and more experienced. They seem to him to function adequately or even well, so they serve him as models and provide the rationale that addiction can be a viable 
coping mechanism. Once fully at home in the subculture, he spread, spends more and more time with his peer addicts. In their company, it seems easy to deal with all sorts of social interactions and tensions. He sees his fellow addicts as adjusted to their problem, problems. They convince him that he, like them, has found the best way to deal with the injustices and difficulties that beset them. Some soon the addicts, addict feels comfortable only with those to whom he can relate in the state of excess. He has acquired an addictive identity, which he can use to rationalize all his addictive acts. Eventually, he begins to reserve and begins to serve as a complement to other neophyte addicts. By bringing them out, he feels justification of his own practices and enlarges his circle. Should a member of the collective decide that he wants out, the collective's apparel exercises all his power to restrain him from doing so. The collective's revolutionary roots, the ideology that gives the homosexual collective its dynamism and fuels, fuels the loyalty and fanaticism of its members, is revolutionary in every sense of the word. This is not surprising as the early homosexual movement in the United States in the mid-20th century was heavily influenced by the dialectical materialism of Marxist-Leninism and its political structures, strategies, and tactics based on the organizational principles of the Communist International and International Freemasonry. In 1950, Harry Hay, an actor and former member of the Communist Party USA that dropped him from its roles as a security risk at Hay's request, and his same and his sixth partner, Viennese fashion designer Rudy Gernreich, co-founded the Madison Society, Society of Fools, the forerunner of the gay liberation movement. Early members Robert Hall and Charles Dennison were CP slash USA members, and Dale Jennings was a fellow traveler living in Los Angeles. Hay based his concept of queers as a disenfranchised minority on Joseph Stalin's four-point criteria for an ethnic minority, a common language, common territory, economic ties, and a typical cast of mind manifested in a common culture. He held that homosexuals had two of the four criteria, language and culture, and could therefore qualify as a social minority entitled to full civil rights. Later, the Madison Society adapted the definition of homosexuals as an oppressed minority culture. Initially, the steering committee of five met in secret. New members to the homophile society were gradually added and sworn to secrecy. Members, degrees of membership were awarded along Masonic lines with initiates forming the first entry guild level and the five original members forming the fifth degree or inner circle. The Madison Society's political strategies, however, remained decidedly communist in favor. They included the formation of front groups such as the Madison Foundation and the anonymous Citizens Committee Against Entrapment. By 1952, Madison guilds had sprung up in major California cities, including San Diego and San Francisco, claiming between 2,000 and 5,000 members. O.N.E. Magazine, one magazine, the homosexual viewpoint, the oldest homosexual publishing house 
in America was an outgrowth of Mattachine politics. In the spring of 1953, the original Mattachine Society dissolved following a period of disastrous internal squabbles over the liability of the society's subversive Marxist roots and the desire to replace Hayes' pre-Stonewall confrontational politics with a policy of integration that encouraged the assimilation of the homosexual minority into mainstream society. Nevertheless, the symbol of gay liberation that raised the clench the raised clenched fist inserted into the rectum remains an uncomfortable reminder of the early revolutionary origins of the homosexual collective in America and how deeply the tenets of Marxist Leninism are embedded into the overall fabric of the collective's ideology of organization and politics, a revolutionary ideology and agenda. Like World communism, the homosexual collective desires to create a new reality and a new man, akin to the Bolshevik animal slash man. Like communism, the implementation of the collective's agenda will require a complete transformation of society. Among the movement's primary objectives are the complete deregulation of sex and the dissolution of the nuclear family structure along Marxist lines. One cannot lift the ban on perversions without first engaging in a concomitant radical social transformation. Ronald Bayer, an associate for policy studies at the Hastings Institute in New York, explained when committing, commenting on Herbert Marcuse's 1960 theories on sexual revolution. Since every civilized society regulates the sexual function and has rules for sexual behavior, and since the collective rejects any and all such societal restrictions, the world as envisioned by the collective will not be civilized. It will be Sadian to the core. The collective stands in opposition to the traditional family that, through its mere existence, implicitly provides the model that renders the homosexual experience invalid. As explained by Jeffrey Works, as explained by Jeffrey Weeks, founder editor of Gay Left, the family norm is strengthened by a series of extramarital regulations which refer back all the time to its normality and morality. Hence, greater regulation of homosexual behavior is closely interconnected with the revaluation and construction of the bourgeois family. Like André Gide, famous for his temper tantrums against families, the collective cries out, families, je vous, je vous ai, port, femme, et foyer clos. In the collective's new order of reality, the biological reality that differentiates men from women will be dissolved. As Wolf has noted, a utopian society for gay culture would be a non-gender polarizing culture in which everyone would potentially be anyone else's lover. The goal of annihilating all gender differences is explicitly stated in numerous in-house homosexual publications and is a dominant theme of contemporary gay literature. For example, in an article titled Indiscriminate Promiscuity as an Act of Revolution that originally appeared in the summer 1974 issue of Boston's Fag Rag, activist Charlie Shively 
opened with the declaration that choosing homosexuality is in itself an act of rebellion, a revolutionary stance. Shively went on to argue that homosexuals should be less discriminant and more promiscuous. No one should be denied love because he is too old, ugly, fat, crippled, bruised, of the wrong race, wrong color, creed, sex, or country of national origin. We need to copulate with anyone who requests our company. No restraint in any way. Multiple loves, promiscuity among faggots is not some dream or fantasy. It is a social, real social experience in many parts of our community. Our desires are not false, nor an expression of hunger, appetite, want. Our desires to suck cock, for instance, are creative. They are the road to creation, to the modification of reality. Peter Tatchell, the English exponent of direct action and head of the London-based group Outrage, in an interview with Gay Today, was asked by moderator Jack Nichols, what are some of the hopes you have for developments in the future? What do you see coming down the road in Britain, in the world? Tetra replied, my ultimate objective is to help create a society where people no longer define themselves as gay, straight, and bisexual. When all three orientations are deemed equally valid and intolerance is eradicated, there will be no need to differentiate between people of different sexualities. True queer liberation is when nobody cares who's hetero, homo, or bi. When we can love whoever we want, man or woman, without fear of ostracism, prejudice, discrimination, or violence. Nicholas called Tatchell a visionary, and Jesus acted up. Ex-Jesuit Robert Goss, a member of ACT UP and Queer Nation, quoted the French philosopher and homosexual Michel Foucault on the new policies of pleasure and the need for the politicizing of gay, lesbian, sexual practices, Gauss explained. Foucault began to articulate a politics of pleasure that emerged within the gay-lesbian community. When lesbians and gay men broke silence, they began to build new alliances in the struggle for freedom. They began to change the deployment of heterosexual, homophobic, power relations as they struggled to assert their sexual diversity by challenging normative practices embedded in familial, legal, medical, sexual, educational, ecclesial, economic, military, political, and cultural structures. Shively, Tatchell, Foucault, and Gosses confirm my earlier statement that the implementation of the collective's agenda will require a complete transformation of society and of man. Organizational and Political Start Strategies The homosexual collective's overall political base is constructed on a refinement of Hegelian and Marxist-Leninist theories and practices. It is first and foremost through his this political prism that all of its pronouncements, actions, and institutions must be viewed if one hopes to gain a true understanding of the movement. Much of the collective's success thus far in advancing its revolutionary agenda has been due 
to its continued ability to conceal its ultimate goals from the general public, recruit large numbers of new members and fellow travelers, establish numerous front organizations, control the language of public discourse, infiltrate, colonize, and subvert important secular and religious institutions, organize public demonstrations and crusades designed to move the master masses in the direction that the collective desires, obtain government tax monies and private financial resources necessary to wage war and secure a significant political power base, influence and or and or control the mass media whereby public opinion will be directed along the lines prescribed by the collective. The vanguard or shock troops of the gay liberation movement are drawn from the hundreds of international, national, state, and local organizations and coalitions that form the homosexual collective. Their main task is the total infiltration, colonization, and subversion of all social institutions that are deemed useful in in moving the revolution forward. As these mass organizations are brought under the control or influence of the collective, they are transformed into fronts that can be readily manipulated by a relatively few members of the vanguard. In addition to expanding the collective's sphere of influence, these front organizations provide numerous fellow travelers and useful idiots who are so essential to advancing the primary objectives of the sexual revolution. They also swell the collective's political and financial power base, provide an unlimited source of potential recruits, and serve as a transmission belt for gay propaganda. Although a detailed analysis of all the organizations and front groups that constitute the homosexual collective at the start of the 21st century is outside the purview of this study, I think that it would be fair to say that they have been relatively successful in executing Foucault's plans for destabilizing and metastasizing all societies, familial, legal, medical, sexual, educational, ecclesial, economic, military, political, and cultural structures. One of the collective's most remarkable successes that brings together all of the above political strategies and tactical elements of Marxist warfare, including the willingness to use violence or threat of violence against its opponents, is found in the capitulation of the American Psychiatric Association, APA, to the collective's demand that homosexuality be removed from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorder, DSM, the APA's official listing of mental diseases. Preparations for the assault on the APA by the homosexual collective began in early 1970 with the formation of an alliance between San Francisco gay leaders and lesbian feminist activists. The immediate target was the APA annual convention to be held in San Francisco that May, as described by Ronald Bayer in Homosexuality and American Psychiatry, the Politics of Diagnosis. The collective decided on a strategy of intimidation, verbal confrontation, and guerrilla theater tactics to bring meeting functions to a standstill. APA opponents were assaulted as motherfuckers, and chaos and pandemonium reigned. The psychiatric profession was accused of 
minority oppression and violating the civil rights of offenders, of civil rights of homosexuals. The officers of the APA quickly sued for peace and offered the first of many concessions to the militant coalition, including an invitation to listen to the experiences of homosexual persons, reported Bear. At the 1971 APA convention in Washington, D.C., the collective decided to press its advantage with more violence and demonstrations. The politics of intimidation had proven to be a gold mine. Forged credentials were used to gain access to convention facilities. Hostile exhibits were attacked, and the leaders of the opposition and the persons of doctors Irving, Irving Bieber, Charles Socorides, and Lawrence Hatterer were openly assailed for their opposition to DSM revisionism, said Bayer. Again, the APA officials responded with further concessions. Bayer noted that by the opening of the 1972 convention in Dallas, the collective had consolidated its victories and was awarded both booth space and panel representation, including a presentation by Dr. Anonymous, a homosexual psychiatrist. All panels dealing with homosexuality were gay-friendly, he said. Many major presentations were prepared by the New York Gay Activist Alliance to expose the scientific errors of a historically afflicted homophobic psychiatric profession, especially psychoanalytic groups. According to Bayer, homosexual psychiatrists informed their APA fellows that most of their ilk were satisfied with their perversion, that homosexuals suffered no pathology, just a different sexual orientation, and that only a small minority chose to seek professional help in dealing with their same-sex desires. On December 15, 1973, the board of the APA voted to remove homosexuality from its DSM listing of mental disorders. A new classification was introduced, Sex Orientation Disturbance, SOD, to replace this deletion. In addition, the APA passed a resolution opposing all forms of discrimination against homosexuals and affirming homosexual civil rights. The board's actions brought an immediate and stinging harsh indictment from many APA supporters of the standard classification of homosexuality as a mental disorder. The following year, in April of 1974, the APA was forced to submit its revision of the DSM classification on homosexuality to a vote of the organization's full membership. In the meantime, the APA decided to replace SOD with ego-dystonic homosexuality. Bayer reported that although the final mail-in vote from over 10,000 members came down in favor of the APA board by a vote of 58% in favor and 37% opposed, 5% other. Subsequent events demonstrated that the battle was not yet over and that the collective's victory rests on shifting sand. Polls of AMA members demonstrated that the majority of psychiatrists continued to hold the view that homosexuality usually represents a pathological adaptation and that this pathology is induced by personality conflicts, and not societal discrimination. Bayer concluded, The homosexual collective is, of course, not satisfied with the status quo. 
It is unhappy that the EPA continues to hold heterosexuality as the norm, but it realizes that pushing the envelope at this time would be politically unwise. Psychiatrist Ben Sorensen best summed up the EPA fiasco within the context of the current campaign to reclassify pedophilia pederasty when he wrote, Does anyone seriously deny that the 1973 decision to remove homosexuality from the DSM was a result of political pressure rather than from dispassionate scientific inquiry? That the scientific community was pressured and manipulated by proponents of sexual liberation is an undisputed fact. So the censor, of the concern that apologists for intergenerational sex may be trying to accomplish the same feat for pedophilia is not far-fetched. Financing the Homosexual Collective Agenda Funding for the homosexual movement and the auxiliaries in the United States that runs into the billions of dollars annually comes from a wide variety of sources, the American taxpayer being the predominant cash cow. AIDS may be decimating the gay population, but it has from but has been filling the homosexual collective's coffers to overflowing. In the homosexual network, Rueda devoted many, an entire chapter to the funding of the homosexual movement before the era of HIV/AIDS. He estimated that the gross annual income of homosexual organizations, exclusive of businesses legal and illegal was about $245,625,000 or just under a quarter of a billion dollars in the early 1980s. The primary sources of these funds were local, state, and federal agencies and programs, foundations, churches, client fees, client fees, and individual donations, often seed money from private Sources, including the tax deduct, including tax deductible foundations and churches, was used to piggyback large sums of government money, that is, tax dollars. Ruling 78 to 305 of the IRS applied the 501c3 status to homosexual organizations that founder, that foster an understanding and tolerance of homosexuals. In most cases, federal, state, and local funds were so commingled that it was virtually impossible to separate them. Direct and indirect sources of federal funds cited by Rueda include the National Institutes of Health, CETA, Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, the Legal Services Corporation, and the Center for Disease Control. Although funding from church groups, including Catholic religious orders, was small in relation to government grants and in-kind payments, symbolically it was extremely important to the collective, and it carries with it no lobbying restrictions, and said Rueda. <clears throat> Rueda cited a grant of 3000 from the Provincial Council of the Eastern Province of the Claritians, a Roman Catholic religious order to the Catholic Coalition of Gay Civil Rights, a homosexual lobbying front organized and led by Father Robert Nugent of New Ways Ministry. A letter accompanied the donation from the Order's Justice and Peace Office stating, the provincial appreciates your efforts to minister to gays, to create a relationship of concern between the church and gays, and to afford basic human rights 
and concern between the church and gays, and to afford <clears throat> to afford basic civil rights to gays. We hope our help to one make a contribution to that end. A considerable portion of untraceable funding to fuel the collective, said Rueda, also comes from wealthy individuals, as well as tax-exempt foundations and private non-profit entities, some of which are directly connected to activist homosexual organizations and others which have no ostensible connection with gay politics. That the collective derives substantial funding directly from its members are not surprising since homosexuals as a group are rarely economically oppressed and are generally wealthier and better educated than the general population. Writer of sexual trivia Charles Fanati confirms that According to the Simmons Market Research Bureau, gay men and women have incredible market muscle. In consumer marketing circles, gay couples are known as dinks, double income, no kids. Simmons Research estimates that gays represent a $24 billion market. In the early 1990s, a demographic study showed that gay men had an average household income of $51,325 compared with the average, the national average of $36,520. Since 1982, when the Homosexual Network was published, the funding of homosexual organizations has increased exponentially from the explosion of AIDS-related government, public, and private ministries, health centers, lobbies, task forces, and educational and research programs created to prevention, created to prevention control <clears throat> and treat HIV slash AIDS. And an un it is an undisputed fact, readily attested by the AIDS activists, that monitoring and financial, uh, the uh, AIDS activists are monitoring and financial accountability for these funds have been criminally negligent, much to the detriment of those who are suffering from the disease or related illnesses. There has also been a rise in corporate and foundation funding of the collective throughout the United States. Much of this funding is directed at programs for elementary and secondary school pupils and designed to psychically homosexualize the school age population. Researcher Diane Dew has compiled an extensive online listing of American corporations and foundations that have supported the Homosexual Collective through October 2000. They include the American Express Foundation, A&T Foundation, Boston Foundation, Buffett Foundation, Bush Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, Robert Sterling Clark Foundation, Commonwealth Fund, Ford Foundation, Gap Foundation, David Geffen Foundation, J. Paul Getty Trust, Howard Gilman Foundation, Hasbro Children's Foundation, William and Flora Hewitt Foundation, Luz Foundation, Henry J. Kaiser Foundation, Kresge Foundation, Liz Claiborne Foundation, Lewis Foundation, Henry Luce Foundation, John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, J.P. Morgan Charitable Trust, Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, David and Lucille Packard Foundation, Public Welfare Foundation, Reverend 
Revlon Group Foundation, RGR Nabisco Foundation, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Turner Foundation, and Andy Warhol Foundation for the visual arts. Particularly striking is the funding of the collective by the Gill Foundation, a relatively new corporate foundation established by Tim Gill, chairman of the computer powerhouse Quark Inc. Since 1994, the Gill Foundation has funneled more than $10 million into the vortex of the homosexual collective. Among the Gill Foundation's recipients have been the Institute for Gay and Lesbian Strategic Benefits, Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches, Center for Lesbian and Gay Civil Rights, Out Charlotte Pride Foundation, Louisiana Electorate of Gays and Lesbians, Film Arts Foundation and Women's Law Project, Guy Gay Speak. In any battle, verbal strategy is an, as, as important as military strategy. Generally speaking, the side that has the best and most forceful verbal strategy tends to emerge victorious. To control language is to control the way people think, since we think in terms of words. The words we speak determine the thoughts we have. Deuced Merlu, Deuced Merlu, M.D., in his classic work, The Rape of the Mind, reminds us that language controls, language control includes assigning new meanings to words, but also the use of coded words and the manipulation of common phrases to subvert them from their original meaning and bring them in conformance with the party law line. Pavlovian conditional conditioning attached to special words forces people into automatic thinking that is tied to those words, said Merlu. And this this conditioning strips words of their intrinsic meaning and robs them of their direct communicative function, thus transforming them into tools of mental manipulation used to imprint the desired reaction pattern in the hearers, he noted. By controlling language and the meaning of words, the collective helps to shape a new reality. Lesbian feminist and theorist Julia Penelope affirmed this in her statement. The attempt to claim words is the attempt to change the dominant shape of reality, taking their cue from Lenin and Stalin, who both recognize the value of Aesopian language to deceive and subvert the enemy. The homosexual collective has placed great importance on verbal conformity and politically correct language and the training of its leaders and the, indoct- in the, in the indoctrination of its rank-and-file members. In the politics of homosexuality, Toby Marota who was in attendance at the founding of New York's Gay Liberation Front, explained the gay speak process. Simply by setting on a name, settling on a name, the radicals who met at Alternate U acknowledged that any persisting collectivity had to have an identity. Gay Liberation Front, each word in that name was selected with the organization as well as political considerations in mind. Unlike homosexual, the clinical term bestowed by heterosexuals and homophile, homophiles, the euphemism 
coined by cautious political forerunners, gay, which homosexuals called each other, was thought to be the word that would most appeal to homosexuals who were thirsting to be known as they would know as they knew themselves. Hence, also, liberation intended to suggest freedom from constraint. Front implied a militant vanguard or coalition, as suggested that the GLF was the crest of a swelling wave destined to force people to recognize and respect the openly gay population. Goss has also acknowledged that, also acknowledged the value of words as weapons. Gay lesbian is correct, homosexual is not. The latter refers to a clinical pathology, while the former reflects a consciously united resistance to homophobic and heterosexual deployments of power relations, he said. On the other hand, Goss applauded the transformation of the word queer from a derogatory reference used by homophobes to an overpowering postmodern word of social rebellion and political dissidence. An increasing number of colleges, universities, and graduate schools are offering Homophobia 101 courses to indoctrinate students in gay speak. Jim Milham of the University of Houston has even attempted to develop a scientific scale to measure homophobia. AIDS health care advocates have assailed homophobia as a cause of AIDS. The creation of the word homophobic is closely linked to the collective's effort to pass itself off as a sexually oppressed minority in need of proclaiming its civil and religious rights. As a sexually oppressed queer Christians claim the epistemological privilege of the oppressed, they stand with their stand with future Israelite slaves. Goss waxed poetically. The implications of Marotta's and Goss's statements are clear. Each and every time we use the word gay as opposed to homosexual or the term homophobic, we validate the homosexual collective and advance his cause. Conversely, by striking words like gay and homophobic from our vocabulary, we deny the collective access to our minds and maintain our intellectual and moral integrity. Any discussion of homosexual dialectics would be incomplete without at least a brief reference to camp and the functions it serves in homosexual discourse. Camp, the artificially exaggerated, effeminate, and banal mannerisms employed by homosexuals, is like gay speak, one of the many defense mechanisms used to help homosexuals homosexual cope with what they perceive as a hostile heterosexual world. The feminization of male <sighs> names is part of the homosexual con- contargo. Although camp always carries with it elements of theatricality and humor, it can also be an expression of hatred and a vehicle for ridiculing and subverting traditional gender roles and traditional heterosexual institutions, including marriage. Camp, like gay speak, is a defense mechanism. It insulates the homosexual in his fantasy world, affirms his perpetual adolescence, and reinforces his perversion. It is not funny. The coming out, politics are coming out and outing. Coming out of the closet and outing are two important strategies 
of gay liberation. Homosexual academics Warren Johnson or Johansson act up and William A. Percy, lesbian gay caucus of the American Historical Association consider these terms to be two sides of the same coin. In contrast, writer Philip Gray claims that the homosexual is not coming out of the closet. He's coming out of daycare. In the collective lexicons, coming out is the conscious raising process that transforms the homosexual into a gay man and binds him to the collective. The commonly acknowledged status, common knowledge stages of his coming out process are as follows. Stage one, the acknowledgement by the homosexual that his condition is a fixed component of his personality, his being. And I'll conclude my podcast here because we're already 55, 40, and 47 seconds. So I'll continue next time. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>